Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Delete. My guest today is the amazing Elaine Welteroth. She is an award-winning journalist, judge on the new Project Runway TV show, and she is now the author of the memoir More Than Enough, claiming space for who you are, no matter what they say. It's such a brilliant book, and I've actually quoted Elaine in my book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, because she is such an inspiring multi-hyphenate. She's probably best known for her most recently held iconic position of editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, where in 2017 she became the youngest ever appointed editor-in-chief. And before, in 2012, she had been the first African-American ever to hold the post of a beauty director at a Condé Nast publication. So after leaving Teen Vogue, she went on to do multiple things in multiple areas of the business, and she is now a leading expert and advocate for the next generation of changemakers. And for that reason, she is one of my favourite people to follow on Instagram. It's just really inspiring seeing someone leave a job like that and go on and carve their own path afterwards. Talking of fingers and pies, she has also written for the hit show Grownish, and she has also appeared on camera for a range of media outlets, including Netflix. In this episode, we discuss her career pivots, we talk about being a multi-hyphenate, and we talk about her brilliant book, More Than Enough. If you liked this conversation, please do leave a rating or a review on iTunes. It really helps me continue to get great guests on the show. Thank you for listening. And here it is. I'm so incredibly excited to be in the company of Elaine Welteroff. You are an actual dream guest. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you for having me. And excuse my very white voice in, in the morning. <laughs> I haven't warmed it up properly yet. Yeah, well, you're having a whirlwind week. You're here, you're full on doing events and podcasts. And I'm thank you for fitting me in, basically. Are you kidding? Of thank course. You. This is an honor. And yeah, it's been a whirlwind week, but it's been honestly such a joy to be here oh. and to meet, to, to get the love in London? I, I wasn't expecting this. I, they say that you guys are cold and I haven't gotten that vibe at all. I, I feel the London love. Mm, it's yeah, been, no, which you been are a blessing. loved here. Mm, um, thank you. I just wanted to start off and I'm in no way comparing myself to you, but I quit Condé Nast in 2016 to start my own business. <gasps> and I've always did. looked at you and being like, oh my God, she's done it. And maybe I'm not a freak for like leaving my dream job. And I wasn't an editor-in-chief or anything, can I just say, but I still felt like this kind of connection to you and just wanting to follow your journey and just break outside the box. Wow. So thank I, you for everything you've done. <laughs> we're both like Condé Nast defects. We just like went off and did our own thing. Wow. Yeah. Where, where were you at Condé? So I worked at Glamour like in the UK office but it was my Glamour dream job UK. for a long time and I loved it there and I know you speak so positively of all your experiences in the past but there is something very normal and natural to finally be doing your own thing. Yeah, absolutely. Why did you end up deciding to leave? I love that you're turning this on me. I won't let this happen. Okay, I'm just <laughs> give me a little little taste. Let me give me a little seed. I think I just wanted to do many different things and having one job title didn't sit right with me. I wanted to do things on the side. And yeah. I think sometimes your side hustles take over and yeah. you have to leave. When was that moment where you knew you needed to pivot? Because in your book, and we're going to talk about your book in detail, such a brilliant book, more than enough, you were on paper smashing it and nailing it and everyone was saying how perfect you were and you just felt like it wasn't completely matching up and you weren't living your best, best, best life and you left. Well, listen, I have to, in order to answer that, honestly, I have to go back to the beginning or like the origin story of my career because yeah. this was always in the plan. 
it wasn't like a surprise, spontaneous pivot. I came into my first dream job knowing that, you know, the magazine portion of my career would eventually come to an end and that I would know it when it was time to make a leap of faith and then build the road from there and an off road rather. And I knew that because I had a career role model that I found when I was going through my existential college crisis of trying to figure out what I'm on this earth to do. And everyone goes through that, by the way. I feel like people don't say that enough. When I was a college graduate or approaching graduation, I was scared, shitless. I felt like I was the only one. And I think we need to talk about that period more to help other young people navigate that because it's so anxiety inducing. But I really did a lot of soul searching at that point. I realized at that point, I want to be someone who loves what I do for work. In order for me to be excellent and successful at work, I have to love it. I had to answer those hard questions. What do I love? Why am I here? What is my passion? Which are hard freaking questions to answer Mm -hmm. at any stage of life, by the way. But I was deep in prayer and low-key deep in depression (laughs) because I was just like, what if I don't get the answers in time and I have to take a banking job or something and hate my job and hate my life. In that period, I came across a woman named Harriet Cole who had really pioneered this idea of being a multi-hyphenate. She started her career in magazines and had a very successful 11-year career in magazines. And she left when she was, I think, the fashion director at Essence. And she began her off-roading career where she became a multiple-time best-selling author and had a what we would call <laughs> podcast now, a national syndicated radio show and a sort of massive television presence and a production company. And she was doing so many cool things. And all within this intersection that she had carved out for herself, which was sort of at the intersection of fashion, black culture, and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being a college senior, surveying the landscape of careers and feeling like no singular job title could possibly fully satisfy me mm-hmm. and and really capture everything that I really was good at and uh, not force me to do things that I'm not good at or, you know, that I'm not interested in until I found her. And I was like, mm-hmm. you can do this? What? So she became my kind of hero and I went after her hardcore. I <laughs> proceeded to stalk her. I called her office regularly. I snail mailed her this really long letter that I wrote for her, very personalized, not at all those cookie cutter letters that people get and they're just like toss away. I made my own mock-up magazine with my face on the cover um, to pitch myself to her to hire me. Um, I did I like did the most to get her attention. And anyway, long story short, months later, after our initial uh, informational interview, she remembered me and she called me back. And at that point, I had already locked in an internship at Essence Magazine, which is my dream internship. And she called me back. I mean, I'll I'll leave some of this for you to read in the book. Ultimately, I began to work with her. I, I flew across the country to learn from her. And those lessons in that first part of my career were totally invaluable and I think really laid the the path that I'm walking now, mm-hmm. I would say. Like, mm-hmm. she gave me the framework to build a career where I'd lay the foundation in magazines, but then really have a strong foundation to, to launch from there. Yeah. All of that to say, I, I think the whole time, like the whole second half of my magazine career, I was constantly asking myself and doing the calculation of, have I arrived at the point of diminishing? returns. And I think that's the thing to ask ourselves in our careers. Like, are we still learning? Are we still growing? Is there still more to achieve? Is there still more I want to achieve? 
Or have I reached the point where now I am experiencing atrophy or I am now stuck Mm -hmm. or I am now no longer growing? And and so I wanted to make sure that I was constantly aware of of that calculation. Like, okay, and and if the answer, if I would say, have I reached the point of diminishing returns yet? And if the answer was no, because I still Mm -hmm. had more to do and I I still had, you know, goals that I hadn't reached yet, then I was like, no, I have to continue to go. And then when I got to the point where I was like, I'm reaching the point of diminishing returns, I see see more opportunity outside of these walls that excite me than I do inside of these Mm -hmm. walls. And especially during a time of not just disruption, but shrinkage in this industry. I was like, I don't want to be on the Titanic when it goes down. The last year that I was at Teen Vogue, I kind of knew going into that year, this is my last year. I feel it. Mm -hmm. So let me write a massive bucket list of all the things I want to do before and accomplish really before I leave. And I'm going to be laser focused on those things so that I leave feeling like I have some, um, you know, legacy is a big, big word. And I don't know if it's appropriate here, but definitely, you know, a body of work that I could be proud of and I could leave this place in a much better place than I came in and really hand the baton over feeling like I did that. You know, yeah. I was really focused on getting all these things done. And then I was like, you know what? I came, I saw, I conquered, I mission accomplished. I am proud of what I've done and what I've been able to do with my team. The team effort is everything. I couldn't have done half of what I did without all of those people, the collective of young people that were able to transform Teen Vogue into what it became. But when I knew it was time to go, I just was like, okay, this is the time to put on the big girl panties Mm -hmm. and do what you set out to do. The the big surprise to me was just that the opportunity to take a leap of faith came much sooner than I had anticipated. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would have the opportunity to be the editor-in-chief by 30 years old. I never thought that would be possible. But once it happened, I was like, wow, it's time to dream a bigger dream and to go for them. Don't wait. You got to go. People are like, oh, it's so brave. So brave that you left and that you pivot. You jumped out of a stable job and a big title and, you know, a corporate salary and all that stuff. But it's like, no, I actually think the scarier thing is staying somewhere too long. I always say this. I wrote this in the multi-hyphen method. I was like, people say, oh, you're so brave to do this. Oh, my God. It's not very secure, is it, to do multiple things? And I was like, no, it's the most secure thing in the world because I have like eight different projects that I've got my fingers in. And if one fails, I'm cool. I'm good. And it was just this like flip. And I, um, yeah, and I just really wanted to talk to you about that, like, honest side of it as well, when you talk about how people say, oh, it's brave, when actually, I think you wrote something for The Cut, or they interviewed you or something about money, and actually you said really honestly and amazingly that actually you made way more money after leaving the secure, stable, big title job. Bloop! That's the secret no one tells you. I mean, and not, and by the way, let me back up. That's not a given. That is not a given. It is not something I take for granted. It is not something that happens for everyone. I think that hopefully, though, it is one example. Maybe we represent two examples of it working. It can work out. And I think there are certain ingredients that make a successful kind of recipe for success in going off on your own. And I'd love to hear kind of more about how you planned that move. But for me, I had lined up a number of opportunities before I left Mm -hmm. and I knew I had a guaranteed sort of income for the next two quarters. And I like to think about my life in quarters because it's too overwhelming. I mean, thinking about it, you know, five-year plans, I can't can't go that far. I don't know where I will be in five years. But I'm excited to think about that though. (laughs) Like just daydream that way you'll be in five years. Oh, well, maybe you can daydream for it. For me, (laughs) that gives 
gives me anxiety. So I'm just like, I'll do it in quarters. But I, I had already secured enough that made me comfortable for the next two quarters. And I had saved a significant amount of money because when you are a first generation, quote unquote, success story or first generation, even college graduate, and you know you have no security blanket, you save. And so I did. And I and so financially, I actually was quite comfortable. And then I did have a very kind of clear vision of what I wanted to do. That's the most important thing to be already kind of running in the direction of those dreams to have already have certain contracts, if you will, lined up Mm -hmm. is crucial for your confidence more than anything. Yes. Um, Because it creates this momentum, this positive momentum that is just like self generating. It's just like Mm. regenerates itself, you know? So yeah, I mean, my goal when I jumped out was like, okay, I just want to be able to make I need to be able to make at least my highest salary that, you know, I ever re- had in my day job. And I made that in the first quarter. And I was like, what? And the thing is, people told me, Elaine, there is so much more, not just joy, peace, liberation, creativity, abundance, but also money mm-hmm. on the other side of this jump. And I'm just like, you can't believe it. You just can't believe it until it is actually tangible and in your bank account, you know? Like, it's like, yeah. all that sounds nice. I-, I had so much fun following your office makeover. <laughs> oh, like, when you yeah. first, I think, like, when you first left, you were building this, like, sanctuary for you and your employees or you know and I just felt like this is a good vibe that you're building here so much of it came organically and after I left and I do believe I mean not to get too woo woo but I am a spiritual person and I do believe that your professional life reflects your spiritual life my belief is that you do get rewarded for acts of obedience and when you feel like you have a call and you heed that call and you move in spite of your fear there's just blessings on the other side that you couldn't even envision for yourself. And I think that the office is one of those examples. Like one of my girlfriends, Clea Wade, was like, this was like maybe a month or two after I had left. She knew about the whole process of me trying to leave and was actually really instrumental in in kind of like coaching me through that stage. But she was like, should we get an office together? And I was like, sure. I wouldn't, that wouldn't have even crossed my mind. And so we did. And she actually should get the credit for decorating that freaking oasis that we have. I mean, she's such a great interior designer. And we had some shoots coming up that were going to take place in that office. So there was a deadline. We had to get it done. And she really did it. And and I felt so lucky to be able to share that space with her. And then she went on her book tour and literally never used the office. Like we never once were in that office at the same time together, apart from the shoots that we did there. And then she was like, I don't even need this office. I have my own home office. I'm also, she became bi-coastal. So now it's just my office and it's just, it just is my happy place. And I have an assistant there and three interns and it's just nice to have a place to turn up at when I am in New York. I'm very rarely in New York, but um, I wrote a lot of my book there. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it just feels like it's nice to have a place that is your own. And that could just be in your own home. It could be a part of your bedroom. It doesn't need to be this big, you know, corporate office or a space that you even pay for. Um, I think it's a state of mind that you can create for yourself around a physical space. Totally, yeah. I wanted to ask you actually about because the book is so incredible about there's a bit in the book that says you were born enough this idea that and truth that we are enough and it's not just where we make ourselves enough like we were always enough and you obviously talk about that and all the intersections of your life and how you you came to realize you were and how society was just so so wrong in making people feel less than but I wondered how does the being enough work with your 
ambition because you are mm. someone by the sounds of it that is always breaking out always trying new things I know they're different but I just wondered if you could explain for the listeners like how they work together that's a really interesting question that I'm so surprised no one else has asked really? me no it's something I should ponder about that I'll do it aloud here for the first time but um, my thoughts might evolve after I think about it more but it's interesting because there is a certain amount of insecurity and doubt and anxiety that drives that has driven me a lot of my life and that comes from this place of feeling less than in certain ways and needing to prove to myself and to the world that I am worthy or that I am smart enough or that I am capable enough Mm -hmm. or that I'm old enough to do fill in the blank. The age thing is such a thing, isn't it? It's such a thing and it works both ways. Being 30, I love what you say in the book about turning 30. I just turned 30. Oh, congratulations. I feel feel (laughs) amazing. Like it's literally like my 20s were just this coat of insecurity and I was like, well, I can't do that because I'm in my 20s. And now I'm like, yeah, I can. Yes. And it's, yeah, isn't it good? It is. It's really good? good. It feels great. Like I feel like society makes women feel like 30 is a deadline that looms over you and you have to be in a certain place in your life and have the man of your dreams and like all these things need to be together before you turn 30. But the reality is for me, at least, and it sounds like for you, turning 30 was like the elimination of a deadline. Mm. Like it was just like... It's like I'm getting started properly. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that some of that stuff fell away when I turned 30 also because of what what I had set out to achieve and was able to achieve by 30, I felt like I have done enough. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can chill out a little bit. <laughs> to feel, not even to chill, but to feel like I can stand on my own two feet and not be wobbly mm-hmm. and not be knocked over so easily by even my own thoughts of mm. negative self, self-talk. self Which um, is why cramming so much into your 20s can be quite good because you, you just kind of explore that and then you can be like, right, what have I learned? Right, and yeah. look back on it all. And I think the book required me to do some of that reflection. So I think that, as I say in the book, you know, there is hustle and there is flow and you cannot successfully sustain one without the other. That's something I learned after turning 30 because I think I lived in my 20s in hustle mode. There was Mm -hmm. like no flow, you know? And then now I'm like, no, I think flow is really important for my hustle, Mm -hmm. right? It like makes my hustle more productive and efficient and effective. And it's really, really, really about the quality of the output, not necessarily the quantity. And so in order for me to deliver quality anything, I have to be in a good place. And what does it take for me to be in a good place? This is something that I've, since leaving Teen Vogue, since leaving that job, I've like found, I've found out like, oh, these are the things that help me feel good so that then I can be excellent. And both need to be true. Like I need both. Finding some semblance of balance has been awesome. And Mm -hmm. I think you do need that, like you need a motivator. You need something that is going to continue to drive you. Someone has said to me before, you're either running from something or you're running to something. And I think Mm -hmm. I spent my 20s running from fear of failure all these insecurities and like want to improve myself and feeling like I can look back at all. I got to look forward. And then now I kind of feel like I'm running towards. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Something that is worth it. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a decision and like purpose that you've chosen. Yeah. It's like, how do I want to 
invest my energy? What are the places that are going to give me a great return on my investment of energy? And that's a privilege to be in that position. I recognize that. That's not something I take for granted and it's not something that everyone can do yet. But I do think if your goal is to identify your zone of genius and then try to reorient your life such that you can spend more time operating from that zone of genius, then to me that's success. It's so interesting, isn't it? All the the conversation around like millennial burnout and how we are often exhausting ourselves because of the climate or the financial the economy kind of failing us and also but also the guilt I think of when you think about the people that came before you I know you yep. talk about this in the book a lot and um, when you think of your grandparents or you think how hard they worked and in a much different way and in such a laborious way and in mm-hmm. such a manual way mm-hmm. and then you think I just get to sit on my like MacBook in a cafe <laughs> I better work because ah, my life is so much easier yeah. I don't know that's my personal thing but I, I just that. I loved how you covered how you felt so connected to your past. And that's also something that has come with age too. There is this quote that I included in my book from B. Mike, who's a phenomenal artist out of New Orleans. And he makes these t-shirts that say, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm. It's so real, especially for women, especially for women of color, black women. The opportunities that we have, it is incumbent upon us to live our best, fullest lives for all of those women who came before us who did not have that opportunity. I get strength and courage and surplus of whatever it is that I feel like I'm lacking when I think about that. It's just all there. Mm-hmm. It's like you can draw from that well. And yeah, I do think it's a, we have a responsibility. I do think like it, there is this old idea, hopefully it's old, that it's like selfish to prioritize your ambition over anything else. But actually, I think it's the most generous thing we could do. And I actually think it's our obligation. Like there's this quote in um, my favorite book of all time is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. I'm probably going to misquote this, but it's something to the effect of our only obligation is to actualize our potential. That quote changed my oh, life. It boils everything down, doesn't it? That's so it. simple. That's it. It reprioritizes everything. And so it's like, and that's not just a selfish principle. That's a principle that you live by and it gives room in your relationships. It actually redefined and reframed love to me because I'm like, if I love someone, then my purpose in their life is to help ensure that they actualize their potential. It is not about me. It is not about making sure that our lives forever intersect. It is about making sure that you stay on the path that you were meant to be on. That is for my mother. That is for my fiance. That is for any boyfriend I've ever had, any best friend that I have, any sister. Like we all collectively, especially in our generation, because we have opportunities that our former generations did not have. We have a responsibility to to realize, to actualize our potential. Let's do this. What are you trying to do and how can I help? And it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a mindset. And I think that's how I think about ambition and my ambition, my ambition and others in the community. Oh, I love that. And that kind of spins on its head. It reframes, for example, say a friendship maybe isn't working out anymore. Maybe it's just you, you both need to realize your potential in, in a different way or right. the same thing with relationships. Absolutely. Even. It gives a certain, there's a certain breath or air freedom around every relationship in your life like you start to you're not trying to control everything as much and you're not trying to contain and keep it it's it's just like you're on your mission I'm on my mission 
to the extent that our missions can kind of fortify each other, help each other, then let's do this. And and if we can't, then that I want you to be on your path. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to read out really quickly one of the quotes from the book that I think is on one of like the big pages, which are very Instagrammable. Ah, the quote: "In order to change the story, you must change the storyteller." Yeah. And it made me just reflect so much on, I guess, where we are still. Annoyingly, we're not there yet with the representation yeah. of the media or advertising or xyz do you think that we are heading in the right direction or are you just kind of like do you know what i'm gonna do my thing over here and (laughs) you like whatever to kind of mainstream media i think i'm like in this nice place where i i hover around and then i can like drop in at the altitude that works for me and then keep on doing my thing you know what i mean yeah like straddle a bit of yeah 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 i feel like it's um it's just so disappointing still like when when i pick up a magazine i'm like what why like why is this like i'm a white woman and i feel alienated by these women that don't even look like women like they've been photoshopped still or they've been Mm -hmm. like or it's like someone that's just had a baby and just totally snapped back and right yeah it's just crazy like where we still are yeah but you know it's weird we have also internalized those messages that make us feel like we need to be perfect and present perfectly and you see it play out on social media the rise of social media is a reaction to our frustrations with mainstream media but we have then adopted so many of those value systems now that we have the freedom to make our own media we are photoshopping ourselves Mm. we are presenting only the best filtered image because we still feel like we have to live up to these standards that were set by mainstream media so if that's there's an interesting interesting paradox there and so as much as we can you know call out the media and hold them accountable we also have to hold ourselves accountable to what we are projecting and what we are feeding into with every like and the culture that we're kind of a part of creating on the internet so interesting i was talking to a friend the other day he was saying you know oh i just find like influencers really not very relatable and they make me feel bad about myself and i was like why are you following it then and she was like i want to and i'm like well that's kind of like you can't really you can't really call it out if you're following it right but i understand that double dynamic that you want to follow that lifestyle it's strange it's really yeah it's like what is the line between aspirational and just completely false yeah, yeah. Or make, something just makes you feel like shit but I think that people a lot of humans naturally want to participate in pop culture and they want to see themselves as part of the mainstream and now social media has become the mainstream it's become what fuels pop culture so of course you want to participate but I do think it alienates a lot of people and we all have to manage our relationship with the internet and Mm -hmm. how much of it we let in, how, you know, manage the time we spend on it. Are you quite Um, good with how much you, I know that Instagram is a huge platform for you and it's very, very inspiring. I love following you on there and it makes me feel good. Oh, thank you. And I think we need more of that. But do you, that's the best Like, do you post and then kind of leave? Like, or do you, do you spend time on there? It's like an evolving relationship. I think it depends on what's going on. It's it's a time suck more than anything. That's what frustrates me about Mm -hmm. it from my relationship with it. Because sometimes when I'm like tired I think the way um, many older Americans still just like brainlessly watch TV, just mindlessly just sit there and just watch TV that they're not even really paying attention to. But you then don't know how that's affecting you. Like, I think all we have to be conscious of every input. So for me, it's like it's not TV. It's still giving me something that I may be unconscious of. It's it's, it's contributing and influencing me in ways that I might not be conscious of and that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And the mindless scrolling of it all. I'm just like, oh, how did I wait? 
Why am I still sitting here doing this, you know? So I could definitely be more disciplined. But going back to your original question about mainstream media, though, do I feel like we've made progress? Do I feel like, you know, are we on the right track? I think that what I would really like to see is as much diversity that is being projected in campaigns and covers. I would like to push every industry to be as thoughtful as about making sure that their backup house, that their teams, that their leadership in particular is reflective of that diversity. And I think that is when we part of a generation that's creating authentic representation and not just like false mm. representation. I think back to the storytellers quote, like yeah, the actual that's people the thing. crafting the story need to be needs to come from that rather than a campaign that's being it. like diverse verse on paper. Right. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunately where we are, which is a bit fraudulent. You know, it's like, okay, people are demanding diverse depictions of themselves. They want to see themselves. Okay, I get that. I hear that. So let me hire this token Muslim with a hijab and put them on a cover in a campaign. And then we've checked our diversity quota and we're back to business as usual. We've done our job. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the point, right? That's just not it. No. We we want to be, we want to not just see ourselves reflected. We want to see ourselves reflected authentically. We want to be included in the creation of these images and of these stories. And that's the only way that it's going to be truly reflective of that culture. And if it, what we're experiencing right now, what we're seeing is just capitalizing on marginalized cultures, which is the antithesis of what we're asking for. Yes. Right. So I think that every company needs to be held accountable for creating a culture of belonging and embedded deeply in it. Right. And and into this and all of these issues that we're talking about are actually so much more complex than they seem on the surface. And these are systemic issues like the lack of representation, the lack of diversity and inclusion is the result of deep systemic oppressive issues that are so embedded into the foundation of most industries and how they've been running for generations. And that's why in my book, I kind of try to shine a light on just simple examples of what that looks like on the inside of one machine. Certainly my book is not an indictment of any one individual or even in even one industry. It's really looking at a generational shift, like the shift that's happening in our generation that I feel like we're responsible for pushing for. But we, in order to push for it, you have to understand how we got here and what it looks like Mm -hmm. and how things work, how broken things are so we understand how to fix them. And like, I think when it feels really macro and big, it's hard to wrap our brains around it. It feels like, oh, this is too big. I can't affect change. Let me just, we're going to become defects. We're going to spin off, do our own thing. And that's amazing. We need folks who are going to spin off and build healthier systems from the ground up. We need that because that's the future of our economy. We need that. But if we're going to try to fix these like broken old systems, we need enough people who actually understand how they work and and, and have the influence to change that. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's one story that I share in the book that's like about when I was a beauty director, the first ever black beauty director in Condé's history, which is something I learned in a headline. I didn't sign up for that role, (laughs) but I recognized the responsibility that came with that to reflect different kinds of beauty on the pages and to use beauty as sort of a political vehicle to change things both behind the scenes and in terms of the representation that people were seeing in the pages. But I learned that hard lesson of it's about more than the picture. It's about who's making those images. And when we're talking about, in particular, black hair, 
just so political. You know, there was one instance where we were working with Amanda Stenberg for her first American cover. And she was someone who had called out cultural appropriation on Tumblr and like had kind of become this activist voice for black folks and black queer folks eventually. And and so it was really important if we're going to put her on our cover for being an activist, we need to respect the issue that she is trying to elevate and reflect an understanding of that issue. And so if she's talking about cultural appropriation online, and that is literally what has made her famous as an individual outside of her acting career, and if we're going to put her with an afro on our cover, and if the reference is, which it was, an Angela Davis reference, and you're telling me we haven't even considered a black hairstylist, that is hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. And if we're doing it because that's just what we've always done, then we really need to examine our process and reevaluate how we work from the ground up. This photographer, who is a white man, who's always a white man, gets to dictate hair and makeup. That photographer, who is a white man, has only ever worked with a handful of white hairstylists and makeup artists. He can no longer dictate who we hire. But I think it's important. Like, I actually think it's important to go super micro so that people are like, oh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh, shit, I get it. And oh and shit, how am so I doing obvious. that in my life? Like, yeah. When you say it. But, and yeah. What I have found in my career is most white people are well intentioned. And it is not like this malicious force that is keeping marginalized people in the margins. I just don't think they have thought very hard about it and why they're there and how to fix it. Like, you know, I think it's like it's a blind spot and it's privilege that allows you to not see discrimination that doesn't affect you. It's like we have to become more conscious of how these things happen in order to fix it. We have to see ourselves as part of the problem in order to fix the problem. So anyway, I didn't mean to get get on a soapbox about it, but I do think it's super important when we're talking about representation to talk about it in a complex way because it's a complex issue. A hundred percent. Oh my God, I wish I could talk to you for like five more hours. Just being told running out of time, which is I knew would happen. I knew it happened too. I felt it, but I went for it anyway. (laughs) Like whatever. No, I just have so much to ask you, but thank you for talking about that as well because I think through your book, the lens goes really deep. You're so self-aware and you bring in all these surroundings and I just think I loved it. I loved it so much. Thank you. Thank you you for writing it. I can't wait to read your book. Oh my god. It sounds like we're soul sisters. Like (laughs) I like I I have to it sounds like we have a lot of the similar philosophies. But it's what you were saying about channeling people who inspire you and actually it's almost like through osmosis you like channel that energy. I feel like I've done that with many people, including you. Even though we've never met, which is really weird. And that (laughs) on a positive note is the benefit of social media. Yeah. Right? Because we have access to these people and their lives and with the decisions that they're making, hacking them moving through how they're moving through the world and like I think of that as and this is a cheesy like a terrible like label I have to come up with a better name for it but digital mentorship and peer mentorship Mm. happening online like because we're we're inspired by people we've never met how can people kind of find you my website elainewelteroth.com and also on Instagram that's where I'm the most active in terms of social media platforms and I'm usually posting a ton there about what's going on and pictures of Oprah Ah! Which, by the way, I I am like so so excited and proud that I'm a part of her new book club. Oh, so that's so amazing! Hopefully, people listening will grab um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book. And we can Incredible. all read it together and talk oh, about it on that the internet. So amazing, considering that in the book, what an inspiration she has been to you from from oh being gosh. a small child. All of us, though, right? Yes, yes, definitely. She is big here in the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah. She is Icon like Queen Mama. Royal, yeah, yeah, royalty for sure. <laughs> and well, so are you. Thank you for um, having me. Thank you this so has been much. honestly the best interview, the best interview <gasps> I've done. 
Oh, that really means great so interview. much to me. So I've been, I've actually been really nervous. You are such a great interviewer, <laughs> oh, really. You. And I'm takes one to know one. You are oh. really, really talented. Thank so, you so yeah, so thank much. you for having me. Thanks. Thank you. 